Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be talking to Pulitzer Prize winner Timothy Egan. He is, of course, the author of many best-selling books, and he is going to talk about his latest project. It's a book called A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. It is a fascinating story that not a lot of people know about, about a very troubling time in our nation's history. Then our friend, the rapper, poet, and singer, Dessa, is going to return to Livewire to talk about her latest collection of poetry, which we may or may not be allowed to say on public radio. She's also going to perform a poem that she writes backstage during our show, and it will not disappoint. So stick around for all of that. Livewire gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. I'm very excited to play this round of station location identification examination with you this week. It's a town I've always been weirdly fascinated with. Okay. So uh, this is, of course, the part of the show where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I am talking about. Okay. Uh, This city is nicknamed the Little Apple. Oh, is it like Albany, New York? It's it's not in the state of New York, but it has the name of a a very uh, sort of important part of New York City. Oh, Oh, interesting. Let's move on to hint number two. It's a bustling college town in the Midwest, and the name of the town is also the name of one of the boroughs of New York. Some might say the the centerpiece of the boroughs of New York. Oh, Bronx, Montana. (laughs) (laughs) Close. Manhattan. Kansas. Manhattan, Kansas. That's right. I have a bunch of pals in Manhattan. They teach at the university there. What's up, everybody? They're tuning in to KANV radio there in Manhattan, Kansas. It's uh, part of Kansas Public Radio. Woohoo! Shout out to uh, all of Elena's friends out there. All right, shall we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter and best-selling author Timothy Egan. They say history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. 
the thing that's so disappointing is how then they could fall for a con man, how now a con man can come along and tell a million lies, and so many people will still follow him. And musician and poet, Dessa. There is always a tinge of fear, right? Because a stage dive that is unsuccessful is an ambulance ride. (laughs) (laughs) With music from our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to folks tuning in from all over the country, including beautiful Manhattan, Kansas, we have a great show in store for you this week. Of course, we always ask the live wire listeners a question. Uh, this week, in honor of a challenge that we put out to our friend Dessa, the singer, songwriter, rapper, poet, uh, we're asking the live wire listeners, what's the most ridiculous challenge you've ever accepted? And we are going to hear those responses coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Ah, graduation news. (laughs) (laughs) So what is going on with graduation? Pomp and Circumstance was definitely playing at Seton Hall University this year, uh, where Grace Mariani was one of the many students to earn her undergraduate degree. She got a BS in education. She wants to be a special ed teacher. Magna cum laude. Nice. Grace attended every class of her four years of study with her service dog, Justin, who became something of a celebrity in their four years at Seton Hall. Justin is adorable. He's a six-year-old yellow lab with an angel face. And I can just see the entire campus falling in love with him. And there's this great video of the moment Grace Mariani comes across the stage to get her diploma. The president of Seton Hall, Joseph Hall, no relation, hands the leather-bound sort of diploma in like that folio to Grace. And then he turns to Grace's right, and Justin is right there next to her, just like he has been through her whole education. And he's got a little rolled-up piece of paper with a ribbon on it. And he holds it out for Justin. And Justin is a very good service dog. First, he looks to Grace, and they communicate, and it's okay. And then Justin picks the diploma in his mouth, and then they proceed to go to the end of the stage together. Come on! The whole crowd is going going wild. You could hear people in the video going, Justin, Justin, Justin. (laughs) That is so great. Actually, you know, uh, academia and higher education also plays a role in the best news that I saw this week. It uh, takes us over uh, across the pond to Cambridge, where a person named Dr. James Wade is uh, on the uh, English faculty there at Cambridge. And um, he was just, you know, picking through the National Library of Scotland and um, was looking and found this very interesting document from 1480 kept by a person named Richard Heeg, who it turned out was a cleric and a tutor who worked for a noble family. And in it, Richard is detailing a big night out where he saw what they think might be the first ever recorded stand-up comedy performance. (laughs) You know I love it when we have a good stand-up on Livewire. This was a whole thing, apparently. Um, uh, the, uh, The performer, who was kind of like a traveling minstrel, told a story of the hunting of the hare featuring a killer rabbit. Mm -hmm. Uh, This uh, stand-up performance also involved a mock sermon 
in prose, and in this mock sermon, three kings eat so much food that 24 bulls explode out of their stomachs and begin sword fighting. I've almost had that happen. (laughs) And then there is some sort of alliteration nonsense verse that this stand-up comic of 1480 was performing, which uh, is called The Battle of Brackenwet. And now why this is kind of important and interesting, actually, according to the scholars, is because, you know, this was a time when things were pretty tough for folks, right? And also this era is thought of being a time when there was largely a rejection of science and just like maybe you would think folks didn't have a great sense of humor. But it turned out they were also partying pretty hard in these days and there were a lot of these minstrels going around doing essentially proto stand-up comedy routines, which people were into, Like, it kind of flies in the face of what we think of as as sort of what was going on in this period of time, at least in this part of the world. What I thought was amazing was uh, Richard Heeg, the guy that uh, wrote this all down, again, maybe the first ever transcription of a stand-up comedy performance. This is how he opens. This is probably what got the um, professor from Cambridge interested. The opening line of his kind of recording of this says, this is recorded by me. Richard Heeg, because I was at the feast and I did not have a drink, which means that the two drink minimum did not apply. (laughs) The two mead minimum. (laughs) Right? The two flagons of mead minimum. The two goat skinned medium. (laughs) Did not apply back in old 1480 when maybe this was the first ever stand-up comedy performance. And that is the best news that I saw this week. All right, let's invite our first guest on over to the show this week. He is a a frequent guest on Livewire, also a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and columnist, and he's the best-selling author of eight books, including The Worst Hard Time About the Dust Bowl. That won a National Book Award. His latest book is A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and The Woman Who Stopped Them. Kirkus calls it riveting history excellently rendered. Take a listen to this. It's Timothy Egan right here on Livewire. Great to see you again, Luke. Timothy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I love this show. I'm happy to be back. Uh, we're always very excited to to have you on. And one of the things I love about your writing is you have this amazing ability to zero in on characters or moments in history that may have been forgotten or maybe people didn't realize how pivotal something was at the time. Um, this story uh, really goes into this part of our country's history in the 1920s that I wasn't familiar with. I'm wondering, what was your way into this story? It was through Oregon. Mm. Um, so, it's about the Klan, y'all. <laughs> right. Just beware. Right. <laughs> so, you know, this is, you sort of touched on this. This is something that happened, a really dark and scary episode, largely forgotten because of American amnesia, mm-hmm. um, that explains much of the way we live now and explains much of the madness that's going on in our country right now. It shows one of the veins that was there before that still circulates. But, you know, I just come back from a 1,200-mile pilgrimage through Europe for my last spiritual journey. And I said, you know, I want to do something a little closer to home. All my adult life, I'd heard about the Klan and Oregon. I mean, Oregon is known as this uber-woke state. But, in fact, they had a Klan governor. They had a, a mayor of Astoria, my beloved Astoria, first American city west of the Mississippi, elected an open Klansman as their mayor. Astoria held a Klan convention and 10,000 people showed up. So um, Oregon actually in the 1920s had more members of this 
oldest domestic terror group than any state but Indiana. So I started looking at Oregon. Oh, they also passed a law, voted the people to essentially outlaw Catholic schools because Catholics were largely immigrants then. Mm. They tried to ban the Columbus Day holiday as a way to get at Italian immigrants. So they hated immigrants, blacks, Catholics, and Jews. Oh, they also hated socially liberated women like my grandmother, who was a flapper. Wow. They didn't like these women leaving their husbands to go out at night, or single women, how dare they go into the speakeasies, you know, mm -hmm. dancing to black jazz. That really stirred them up. I'm wondering about 1920s Indiana. That seems like an interesting place for the Klan to have this intense stronghold, considering right. that uh, Indiana fought on the side of the Union. So from Oregon, I realized the real story was in the dead center of the country, the mm. quintessential American state. Now, a couple of simple, horrible facts. One in three white males in the state of Indiana in the 1920s belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. 300,000 people put their hand on a Bible and swore to, quote, forever uphold white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and they had very few Jews, um, very few African-Americans, although blacks were moving north because of the Great Migration. Not even that many Catholics. It was the most homogenous of all American states. It was Rockwellian America on the surface. And these Klansmen were merchants, bankers, preachers, politicians, judges. They weren't toothless rubes living under bridges. They were the people who held their communities together. So because it was so homogenous, they feared the churn of America of the 1920s, mm -hmm. the great change going on. Mm -hmm. So this Grand Dragon who I write about mm -hmm. was, um, you may recognize him today as a, you know, <laughs> he was a con man. He, was, he knew how to play to people's fears. He lied by way of respiration. Mm -hmm. um, huh. As in, <laughs> if he was breathing, he was lying. Right, right. God, exactly. That reminds me of somebody. <laughs> Some of the sentences in this book were like a weird time warp. Like, wait, who am I reading about now? What, what, 1920s, 2020s? Because they could very easily be applied you to know, some figures. You it's, know, it's unfortunate for our country, but we, we, this is an American archetype. I used to call him sort of the music man of hate, the Grand Dragon. He would go from town to town, and they would start in these churches, these Protestant churches, and he'd bribe a minister. And then they'd go to the fraternal clubs. It was the golden age of the Odds, Oddfellows, the Elks. Mm -hmm. And they'd steal from them their silly rituals, and their secret handshakes, and make that part of it. <laughs> But what was so horrible about this clan? on the surface, again, they were very mainstream. They had a Ku Klux Kitties, where eight, nine, and 10-year-olds would go to their little dens and put on hoods and robes and learn who to hate. Uh, they had a women's brigade that had two million members. Wow. Um, they had barbershop quartets at their rallies. But beneath it, they were still all about fear of others and terror. Mm -hmm. And also there's a hero of this book, the woman who stopped the Klan, or at least struck a real blow to their movement. And I want to talk about that woman when we come back from this quick break. This is Livewire Radio. We are at the Reeser in Beaverton this week, talking to Timothy Egan about his book, A Fever in the Heartland. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners 
uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. We're at the Patricia Research Center for the Arts in Beaverton this week. We're talking to Timothy Egan. His latest book is A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. I want to get a little more information about this guy, D.C. Steve Stevenson, yeah. who was the grand wizard of the, of the Indiana a Ku Klux Klan and wielded immense power. Can you kind of put into context what this guy looked like and what sort of control he had in 1920s so Indiana? He himself said he was a nobody from nowhere. He he was a traveling salesman who drifted into Evansville, Indiana, right across from the Ohio River. And southern Indiana is very much a southern state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned they fought on the Union side, where their generals complained they were the most southern sympathetic of all the states. So he tried a whole bunch of schemes to make money, and he finally seized upon... Racism. A, racism, exactly. <laughs> and he, in four short years, he's controlling 21 states... A Klan republic, which was the state of Indiana, they had a Klan governor, Klan legislature, um, Klan members of Congress, Klan mayor in Indianapolis, they called it Klanopolis. <laughs> and a completely Klan-controlled state. He, he himself was worth $28 million, had a mansion, his own private plane and a yacht, all off of the initiation fees of you know, these, these Klan's people. So he saw it as a great scheme, a great way to 
to fleece people, but they didn't, they went along with it. They knew what they were doing. They had this fear. He, he just knew what people wanted to hear. Mm. And he played, he would always say, you didn't create your own problems. Someone else did. Mm. Right. And there's a scene on the 4th of July in Kokomo, Indiana, the largest Klan rally in the history of the world. 200,000 people assemble in the cornfields of Indiana outside of Kokomo. And he drops out of this plane with his purple robe and saying, greeting to all my subjects, you know, and they all bow down. Like wow. he's, it was a total cult behind this one guy. But his, his dark secret was he professed temperance because they were really for prohibition because they didn't like immigrants, their wine and beer. Right. But he himself was a raging alcoholic and a blackmailer. He professed um, sexual purity for women. They would, signs would say, protect women. He himself was a sexual predator and a rapist. Mm -hmm. And so he had this secret, you know, secret, and that's where Madge comes in. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Madge uh, Overholzer. Yes. How did she and Stevenson, how did their paths cross? Yeah. So she lived with her parents. She was 28 years old. She was a woman of her age. She cut her hair in a short bob. She loved going to jazz clubs. She didn't feel like she had to be married to complete herself. She was a very much a 20th century woman. Um, but her job was at risk. She had a state job. And so she had to go to the Grand Dragon who controlled the whole state. Wow. Now, let me just give you a quick context here. Other people had tried to bring down this clan. The NAACP came, came into town and said, you know, we blacks have been the most loyal voters for the Republican Party since Abe Lincoln. We're going to bolt. They told Calvin Coolidge, if you don't condemn what's happened here in Indiana. And silent Cal hmm. remained silent. Um, the University of Notre Dame, which the Klan planned to bomb the Golden Dome because they hated Catholics so much, um, there was a riot in South Bend where the students went out and they were mostly Irish-American kids, so they threw potatoes at the Klan <laughs> and, and routed them. And the next day there was a huge headline in the Chicago papers, you know, students rout Klansmen, and it gave birth to their nickname, the Fighting Irish. Oh, really? Yeah. Which came out of that riot in 1924 when the Notre Dame students routed the Klan. That was the last likable thing the Notre Dame fan base That's did. That's true. <laughs> you know, I have to say I agree with you. We have a lot of <laughs> right. Oregon fans here. That right, right. I, 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 I do. I, I, you're absolutely right. But here's the context. Some, some important institutions took a swing at this monster, mm -hmm. and they right. all failed. The only one who was able to bring him down through the horror of what happened to her, and I don't want to spoil the story, yeah. she became one of his victims. But she bravely, her words in court, were able to bring this monster down. He said she was a nobody. He was the law, is what he said. Mm. I am the law. Having looked now at, at the Klan back then, and I'm sure you're also kind of analyzing it through the lens of our modern right. politics, do you see some of the similar things when we have despots with authoritarian tendencies right. and armed militias, people showing up in the public <laughs> space with weapons. I mean, do you see troubling similarities? Well, you know, of course, Luke, you don't tell these stories just because they're good stories. <laughs> and, you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Yeah. And this is one of those things where you see a lot of the things that are happening today just, just repeating themselves. Now, the thing that's so disappointing is how then they could fall for a con man, how now a con man can come along mm -hmm. and tell a million lies and live an awful life, and so many people will still follow. If you say the right things, people are willing to forgive that. Also, the, the slogans were very similar. So um, the Oregon Klan slogan was, um, make America a country for Americans. 
It's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that and, barely fits on a hat. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Why they had to shorten and, it. And um, they had six million members nationwide. Their goal was the White House. And they were on their way to 20 million people. They marched down Washington, D.C., August 8th, 1924, 50,000 Klansmen. So today, if you go to a call a press conference and you say, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan, you're shamed and hooted and... In 1925, if you said, I'm a member of the Klan, people would come up and you'd say, howdy, neighbor. Wow. It was that ingrained in society. Now, we've forgotten this. Mm-hmm. The Klan is toxic, but their ideas still float around. We're talking to Timothy Egan about his latest book, A Fever in the Heartland, here on Livewire Radio, coming from the Reeser in Beaverton, Oregon this week. Um, should we take that as some small comfort that the Klan is sort of reduced to this a very sort of hated organization now as opposed to how it was in your book in the 1920s? Certainly. And one of the, I mean, there's a lot, there's, there are good Hoosiers, as they call themselves. I in, believe we're on in Indiana, so we just want there's to some great Hoosiers say to those out there. folks. I'm yeah. still waiting to get my blurb from Mike Pence. And, you know, I, <laughs> God, he hasn't responded. I mean, the fact, though, that, like, because it's so easy to feel like this is the darkest timeline, like we're currently in the darkest timeline. Right. But we are not in a timeline where the Klan is allowed to run a state openly. Right. So, I mean, does that represent well, some ju- progress? I'll, no, and I'll just, no, of course that. And, and I, I am, I believe in the quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice that Martin Luther King Jr. said and Barack Obama said. And it's hard to continue believing in that. Our better angels, as Lincoln said, sometimes get their asses kicked by our worse <laughs> angels. But I'll just give you a couple quick examples. They passed all these eugenics laws, including one here in Oregon where they involuntarily sterilized so-called undesirers. And those were promiscuous women. Those were people who had epilepsy. Those were alcoholics. So they would you know, deem you undesirable and unable. And they would, 30 states had these laws. That was one of the Klan's biggest things. They're off the books entirely. They, one of their big things was to make it a felony, a felony for two members of the same race to marry. And they passed laws in many states that outlawed marriage of different, of different races. Those are off the books finally after a Supreme Court decision. Yes, yeah, upsettingly recently, though, in a yeah, lot of places. you're right. And we just passed a federal lynching law, which was the whole point of the, the NAACP when they started last year. Wow. Joe Biden just signed it, the federal lynching law. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard story, but there are, there are good people in here. The yeah. good guys and women do win. Mm-hmm. I mean, they route this monster finally. I'm curious how that eventually happened. Was it because of external pressure that was put on the Klan? Was it because people lost interest in it? Was it because minds, hearts and minds actually changed? So I wrestled with that, Luke. It's a great question. You know, she exposed how scandalous and dark-hearted these mm-hmm. bastards were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the head of the Oregon Klan fell because it was a dentist who um, killed a woman while giving, trying to give her an abortion. Uh, the head of the Colorado clan fell because he was molesting a boy. So they had a series of personal scandals. Turns out these folks weren't great. No, they, <laughs> no, they were. They had some, they had some real skeletons in Everything their closets. Everything they marched for, you know, save yeah. our women, period. It was all BS. So mm. my alternative theory is they got everything they wanted. Mm. They had three goals. Prohibition, 
to outlaw alcohol in every square foot of the United States because it was coming from immigrants, right. Italians and Irish. And in Indiana, it was so strict. They, at one, some of these towns outlawed sauerkraut <laughs> <laughs> because there was, you know, it just fermented and it had 0.00% alcohol. They made it a crime in Indiana, they call it the bone dry law, to have an empty bottle if it smelled of booze. So that was their first goal they wanted, and they got it. Number two, Jim Crow moved to the north. And Washington, Oregon, they had redlining laws. Banks mm -hmm. refused to loan to African-Americans. Uh, schools were segregated. In mo many schools in the North, so they passed that. And finally, the horrible Immigration Act of 1924, which is their main goal. They wanted to create a bloodstream that looked like America of the 1890, before all these immigrants came. Mm -hmm. And so scholars have estimated that up to 2 million Jews in Eastern Europe who otherwise would not have been slaughtered by Hitler during the Holocaust, including Anne Frank's family, would have come here had they not passed that law. It was designed to keep Jews out, Southern Italians out, Greeks out, Asians, forget about it, they were not allowed at all, Africans, so they got their main goals. That's my alternative theory, is having accomplished most of what they wanted, that they sort of went out of existence. Mm -hmm. I, I'm still struggling with which, which happened first. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, so the people don't get the sense that the book is only dark, because right. first of all, it's as are all your books, very well written. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, very, it's, it's an extremely interesting story. It has dark moments, but there's also a lot of heroism and I think a lot of reason for hope. I'm curious if you, just like personally as Timothy Egan, if as you sort of looked into Madge Overholzer and this role that she played in, in this book, if you sort of took anything away that the rest of us could apply to like standing up to hate and intolerance? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, not enough people did stand up to it in India. They, the the right-thinking people caved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some of these towns, 50% of the people belonged to the Klan, including their children. I have a chapter here on the first recording of African-American jazz. Louis Armstrong cuts a record in Richmond, Indiana, with the King Cornets. I think it was called King Cornets Jazz. The very first African-American jazz recording went big. On the same day that the Klan held a rally in that town that attracted 40,000 people. Mm. So jazz, America's musical gift to the world, flourished mm -hmm. in this darkness. Mm -hmm. And one certainly outlived the other. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one of the things I was looking for. As far as Madge goes, she was just a take no woman. She was just like a woman of her age. And she's like, you know, she thought she could control this guy because she was, she, was, she was a feisty, independent flapper. And it just didn't turn out well for her. But she had the guts. Again, i, I got to watch my words because I don't want to spoil the story. Yeah. She had the guts after this awful thing happened to her to say, I'm going to bring that guy down. So as far as hate, um, you know, I think this is, this is true of Oregon. There were very few Jews, despite it being some sort of a reputation, very few blacks. Oregon actually, after it became a territory, kicked most of the blacks out. Mm -hmm. And after it became a state in 1859, they moved to Washington because they weren't welcome here. So there's a vein that runs in there. Mm -hmm. And it comes from homogeneity. And Indiana is somewhat similar in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating book. It's A Fever in the Heartland. It's by Timothy Egan. Go out and get it. Timothy, thanks for coming back on Livewire. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. That was Timothy Egan right here on Livewire, his latest book, A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America, and the woman who stopped them is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode of Livewire to 
Todd Witter, Portland, Oregon. Todd is not just a pal of mine. Todd is also an important part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is a very big deal because it is genuinely what allows us to keep doing Livewire. So thank you, Todd, so much for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our next guest is a musician who splits her time between Minneapolis, Manhattan, and uh, a tour van where she admits she tends to cruise about like mm, six miles an hour over the posted speed limit. She's also written essays for the New York Times and National Geographic Traveler. Her latest book of poetry, which technically we can't say the name of on public radio, is out now. This is Dessa, right here on LiveWire. Hi there, Dessa. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, now, uh, you're an incredible musician. We've had you on as a musical guest before. You're a writer. You're a podcaster. Um, and one of the things I loved about this book of poetry is that you really take us kind of behind the scenes of like the life of being a touring musician. And so I thought it might be kind of illuminating for everyone to just jump right in on a poem about that. Can you read How to Stage Dive? 100%. This is a poem called How to Stage Dive. Pay attention to your posture while singing and practicing guitar. High school is a great time to start. At your first open mic, speak and sing more slowly than feels natural. Time moves differently up there, and it always will. Accept every performance that you are offered. When you get a plain envelope with some cash in it, pay a little tax anyway. <laughs> the humblest shows in coffee shops and rec centers will be the most important of your career because the shy kid in the back grows up to work for Warner. Hmm. <laughs> Arrive on time, even if the headliner is late. Don't eat or drink anything expensive backstage unless you are invited. Stand by the merch booth after a show. If you played well and you have a Sharpie in your hand, it will occur to somebody to ask for an autograph, and then a line will form. Carry reserves of aspirin, allergy medicine, and hot sauce. <laughs> this habit will double your value to the touring party. <laughs> Nobody is named Hey Sound Man. Do not trash the green room. Little clubs are owned by the same people who own big clubs, and you will have to come back to Omaha someday. <laughs> Hire people that you trust. Keyboard can be learned. Character cannot. Yes, a grilled cheese sandwich can be made with a hotel iron. Do it once and then get over it. The grease is messing up everybody's clothes. <laughs> Help load in the heavy gear. The band will notice and talk about it when you are not around. Your van will be robbed. Bring the merch cash and your laptop inside every single night. When your name is on the marquee, take a picture. You're allowed. Perform at least one song very well during sound check because the bartenders are listening. And they are the viceroys here with the ear of the booker whose pen signs your check. White shirts will show sweat rings. 
Tight stripes confuse the TV cameras. We all wear black on stage for a reason. <laughs> Invite your openers to help themselves to the cheap beers. Save the good stuff for your people. Pick a city where you have a strong draw, preferably a sellout. And towards the end of the set, play your second biggest song. Ask the band to loop the outro. Walk to the edge of the stage. Take a small step that puts your toes over the edge. Lift your arms. The front two rows are close enough to see what you are thinking already. Rock back twice in time with the music to prime them and then jump. <laughs> Land on your back. <laughs> Land on your back on their bed of palms. You will not feel weightless. You will feel the full heft of your grown body muscled up to the light by drunk people of varying heights. <laughs> and you will want to lift your head to look back at your band, your friends on stage, to say, this is madness, or come and join me. But you don't have time for that, because now you have to focus. Look up at the ceiling, the light tresses, the calcified smoke. Feel the fingers curl around your ankles. Listen to the voices below coordinating your safe passage. Make yourself into a battery to store some of this feeling because it is the currency of your life. And it is only ever dispensed this way, sandblasted. And there will be many months and some years where you will receive no payments at all and you will need to draw on this reserve of elation and arrogance and selfishness and selflessness and communion while your friends buy dogs and houses. <laughs> you can't steer, really. The crowd just sets you back on stage when it is time. That is Dessa. Right here on Livewire, reading from her new book of poetry, You Know What's on the Moon. That's such a beautiful piece of writing, but it also, the line in that poem that struck me was that you're basically reminding yourself that what you're getting from this life of being a touring musician is this community and this feeling, and what you're not getting is a dog and a house, and the traditional trappings of life that I would imagine you watch your friends and people in your age cohort doing. Yeah, I mean, if you can bury a complaint and a thank you, right? That's the way to do it, yes. There is a little bit of whining at the end in that, um, probably as is the case with any human life, right? That you get to look left and right and see how others did it, and on some occasions wish you had what they were eating. But on the whole, yeah, I think like forfeiting the stability and the predictability of a life where I have, say, mm, dental insurance. <laughs> it's been a fair trade. I really like this life. Were you pretty scared the first time that you actually did a stage dive? And how did you like, like hype yourself up for it? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been scared Every time, there is always a tinge of fear, right? Because a stage dive that is unsuccessful is an ambulance ride. <laughs> um, Do you want to try it for, with this crowd? I know for a fact we have some of the most spry people from Scapoose here in the front row, regular attendees. 
I'll be honest, I took a quick scan and I decided today I think I'd stay up here. <laughs> All right. Um, there's a, a poem in this book that I have been like ruminating on because it just, it's, it's funny and beautiful and brings up a lot of thoughts I hadn't had. Uh, it's called Fun Facts. Could you read that for us? Fun Facts. Did you know that tomatoes aren't actually vegetables? They're microaggressions. <laughs> that if you squish a lightning bug on your finger, its closest male relatives will return to avenge him. That it takes your body 20 minutes after you've stopped eating to know if this was a date or just a friend hang. <laughs> that even before the Chinese invented paper, wasps were making it. But before that, Christopher Columbus invented wasps. <laughs> that a newborn baby has a hole at the top of its skull, which must be taped shut so he does not escape through it during the night. <laughs> that there are no two fingerprints. <laughs> that some people perceive cilantro as currency. <laughs> that the pupil extends all the way to the back of your head and down to your pelvis. <laughs> that the ability to curl your tongue is not that important. <laughs> and that it takes seven years for all the cells in your body to let you down again. <laughs> That's Dessa reading from uh, her new book of poetry, Bits on the Moon. Okay, uh, the line in that poem where it, you're saying it takes the body how long to figure out if this is a date or something else, that feels like it's drawn from lived experience for you. <laughs> I mean, yes, but at the same time, I don't want to like you know, staple like the back of my hand to my forehead, poor me. Because I think a lot of us have sort of like made a social overture where we were a little too shy to say, do you want to go on a romantic date with me at 7 mm -hmm. p.m., right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, because So it's like, hey, we should hang. Or like, do you want to go over like <laughs> notes from Jim? Because <laughs> right? if, you, if, you, if you put it out there that directly, like would you like to go on a date with me and they decline, there's like no... There's no pretending that that wasn't your intention. And I hate pain. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I think, I think a lot of us have tried to, you know, like split the diff, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, kind of one ski and both, who man, I'm out of metaphor there, but. <laughs> <laughs> have you developed a system at this point <laughs> in your life or are you still more or less just playing it by ear? <laughs> sounds so sad. <laughs> I recently met a guy. <gasps> well. Wait, 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 one more time. Ooh. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that with the audience. <laughs> you just like played them like a theremin. <laughs> that was incredible. Okay, uh, speaking of um, non-living non experiences, uh, these AI chatbots, I feel like they're kind of starting to muscle in on the writing game, and uh, as you would know, Elena, and also the poetry game. We actually had ChatGPT write a poem about you, Dessa. 
This is a real thing. We put some of your information into the program, and it wrote a poem about you. And here is how that poem goes. Actually, would you like to read it, Elena? Sure. Okay. I'll do this first stanza. You do the second okay, stanza. Okay, we can alternate. A voice so smooth, a flow so sweet, Dessa's music is a treat <laughs> to meet. Her words, they flow like a river's stream, a story so real, it feels like a dream. From the pain of heartbreak to the thrill of love, Dessa's music soars like a free-flying dove. Her lyrics paint pictures vivid and true, a mirror to life, and all that we go through. Ooh, ending on a preposition. Come on, Chad GPT. Spoken like someone who teaches English at a university. Um, ha- are you feeling any threat from this Chat GPT? <laughs> Do you think, I mean, this is a real question because, yeah. like, you, you've spent a lot of time also thinking about the human mind and the human brain and technology. Do you think, realistically, uh, there is a danger that these AI programs could create art and, and things that are equal to what humans can do? You know, I spent some time with ChatGPT last week asking it to write a rap in the style of me as well. Mm. And... Yeah, I will admit, I was, whatever, like, three stories below underwhelmed was, I was just so surprised. I was so surprised that it's that bad still, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, okay. But, yeah, I think it's a matter of time, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. We are talking to writer, rapper, podcaster, poet, Dessa. Um, so we've been talking about the intersection of technology and poetry um, because you're a poet and it's something you've thought about. But we, we sort of wanted to do a little experiment with you, Dessa, or have you participate? It's not like an experiment on you. (laughs) It's an experiment that you're participating in, we hope. Um, We wanted to see if you can prove that human poets are still superior to some damn computer robot, which is, I assume, how AI works. Um, So we have some prompts. We have some words uh, that we're going to lay on you, and then we're going to have you go off stage and write a poem in real time and then come back out later in the show and present us the the results of your work. Would you be down for that? I'm game. Okay. I like it. Now, um, the words that we have for you uh, are some of the top Google search terms from last year. Elena, can you please reveal to Dessa what the prompts are for this poem? Four prompts. You have to use all four, is that correct? Yes, yes. Wordle, Ugh. Betty White, okay. PCR test near me, <laughs> and uh, this one's a question: What does oligarch mean? <laughs> oh now, man! Oh. I want to say <laughs> now, Dessa, if you already have written a poem about those things, you can't use it. <laughs> This needs to be an original work about those things, okay? Okay, meat versus machine. I'm ready. Okay. Okay. Dessa, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello right over there. And we are talking to Dessa about her latest book of poetry, which we can't really say the name of, but just Google it. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to hear the result of Dessa being off stage and writing that poem on the fly. 
and uh, I've got a feeling it's going to be amazing. So stick around. This is LiveWire. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, we are going to get to Dessa in a moment and hear uh, the result of her very fast poetry writing backstage. But we did ask the audience a question this week based on Dessa taking on this challenge. We asked, what is the most ridiculous challenge you have ever accepted? Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Uh, how about this one from Nora? The most ridiculous challenge Nora's ever accepted? Officiating my friend's secular wedding without offending her very conservative parents. Ooh. I've only officiated one wedding, and I I can tell you this now, Elena, because the marriage did not go the distance. I was literally sitting in a Starbucks the day of Googling wedding vows. <laughs> Do not ask me to officiate your wedding because like almost everything in my life, I will be doing it at the last minute and the quality of the work will suffer. I officiated the wedding of my brother to his lovely bride about a year ago. And immediately after I was flying to San Francisco to do an Elvis impersonation for this project that I was working on. (laughs) And so I gave my brother the option to get married by Elvis. And surprisingly, they said no. His sister, as Elvis, at this, I assume, very beautiful and well-thought-out ceremony. Yes, gorgeous, fancy wedding, and Elvis did not enter the building. No, he didn't. I think we're all better for that. Okay, what's uh, some other ridiculous challenge one of our listeners took on? Oh, no, this one hits me where I live. It's from Ava. Ava says, going to a bookstore after deciding I am not allowed to buy any more books until I make a dent into what I already own. Oh, that is torture. Like when you go into an airport and your bags are full and you've already got books, but you have time to kill. So you go Mm -hmm. to like the bookstore and the airport and it's like, I can't buy anything. I have a friend who is so dialed in on his like travel stuff uh, that he will take a book that he's almost done with Mm. so that he then he flies with it. He finishes the last, I don't know, however many pages and then just like donates it or hands it off or leaves it sitting on a chair and he comes back lighter than he went out. I do that with old New Yorkers. I travel with all of the New Yorkers that have been stacked up and then uh, try to have like zero New Yorker some game. (laughs) I have 15 years of New Yorkers (laughs) at my house that I'm really committed to fully reading someday. Okay, uh, one more ridiculous challenge that a Livewire listener accepted. Here's a terrifying one from Nick. Nick says, I once ate a ghost pepper on a dare. Yikes. There are entire channels of the internet now that are just dedicated to celebrities eating (laughs) chicken wings that are too hot for them. And so many of them are so good at it, which really shows you how tough you have to be to make it in Hollywood. That's a really interesting takeaway from that. Thank you to everyone who responded to our listener question. 
Uh, we've got another one coming up for next week's show. Hang tight for that, though. I want to tell you about what's going to be in next week's show first. We are going to be talking to Sona Movsesian, uh, maybe the most famous personal assistant in America. She, of course, worked for Conan O'Brien for many years, and uh, she's a part of one of my very favorite podcasts. It's called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Uh, she's got a memoir out. It's called The World's Worst Assistant. And in it, she explains how to be strategically bad at your job, but in such a way that you're unfireable. Then we're going to hear some stand-up from the very funny Marcella Arguello talking about the politics of airport parking. And let me tell you, they're complicated. Then we're going to get some music from Portland's very own Gemini musical duo, Brown Calculus. And we're going to be asking the Live Wire listeners a question. Elena, what are we asking the folks for next week's show? We want to know, what is the worst job you have ever had? Oh. <laughs> Boy, I tell you what. If we don't get any responses, I can go ahead and just uh, take the ball and run on that one, Elena. <laughs> All right. If you've got an answer to that question, what's the worst job you've ever had? Go ahead and send it in on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, let's now get back to the live show. Now, if you can remember all the way back before the break, we asked Dessa, noted rapper, singer, poet, friend of Livewire, to actually write a poem backstage during the show based on some top Google searches that we'd recently looked at. So she was working away. She's back on stage, and we're going to hear what she came up with. Take a listen. Hey, Elena. Hey. Can you remind us of the prompts that we gave Dessa earlier in the program? Yeah, sure. They are Wordle, Betty White, PCR test near me, and what does oligarch mean? All right. All right, Dessa, you have been hard at work back in the green room creating a poem with those prompts. Please take it away. And this is an homage titled Aging Tastefully. You couldn't be a better Betty than a Betty White. Tight curls, blue humor, and a lot of fight. Take me at my wordle, the world is full of hurdles, and the best place for a burden's at the bottom of a bourbon. PCR, perils come relentless. No matter our intentions, the circumstances test us. And if we're lucky to live long enough, trust that we will see a test near you and a test near me. <laughs> Don't take more than you can eat. Stand, should another need your seat. Ask not, what does oligarch mean? <laughs> Unless thine own yacht sparkles spotless clean. Be like Betty in her crown of curls, sharp tongue, soft heart, ever golden girl. And when our time together finally comes to an end, I'll sing it then and ever. Thank you for being a friend. That was Dessa, everybody. That was Dessa right here on Livewire. I told you, she did not disappoint. Her new book of poetry, the name of which 
alas, I cannot say on public radio, is available now. She's also performing with the Minnesota Orchestra in Minneapolis this summer, so go check that out. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Timothy Egan and Dessa. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Paige Thomas. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Tanvi Kumar is our production fellow. And Yasmin Median is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Todd Witter of Portland, Oregon. Hey, Todd. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.